ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Taylor Swift's Eras Tour is coming to Melbourne this week, or Eras if you prefer, and then it's going to Sydney. And even if you're not a fan of her music, the level of devotion by her acolytes might remind you of another era in Australian music history, Beatlemania. That was 60 years ago. Does this qualify as the same kind of moment in fan culture? Music fans Kate Patterson and Jessica Lesky can relate. Kate is doing a PhD at RMIT on the music industry and Taylor Swift, and she's kindly stepped out of the Swift-posium to talk to us. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased you could join us. And director Jessica Lesky explores fangirl culture over the decades in her documentary, I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, which includes stories from Beatles fans. Jessica, hi. Hi. Now, Kate, I'll start with you. Tell us why you're excited about Taylor Swift coming to Australia and maybe just a little explainer about just how big she is for any of our listeners who might not know much about her. Yeah, I think the hype leading up to this tour has been something we haven't seen in a very long time. I mean, she's obviously playing at the MCG here in Melbourne, which is a big deal in itself, just in terms of those record numbers. But I think as we've seen over the last year, Taylor Swift herself has just become such a phenomenon. She touches so many different areas of our culture. I mean, we had the Super Bowl, obviously, yesterday. We've got the fandom, which is such an interesting aspect to study because they are so engaged and they're so creative and they're participating at these really high levels. And then you've got the fashion, you've got the outfits, you've got the friendship bracelets. You know, she's she's having conversations about the re-recordings and changing things in the music industry. She really is kind of dominating uh, so many different aspects. And I think that's why there has been this kind of extra hype for her coming down under um, at the moment. That re-recordings thing is interesting, isn't it? She, she had this big, well-publicised battle with her old music company saying, I want my masters. And there was a tussle about that. And so she went, right, I'm going to re-record a whole bunch of songs. And they did so much better than the originals and now I understand that the fans are shaming each other for playing the originals. It's just huge. Uh, How much is she worth in terms of her contribution to the economy and, and just how much she's making? It's pretty incredible. Um, I saw someone last week. We've actually ha- we had a panel uh, at the Swiftposium this week on the sort of Swiftonomics of it all. But I think it's that she's going to bring in a third of our yearly live music income in um, in Victoria. So just over this weekend, being at the MCG, it's like over a billion dollars in you know tourism, outfits, hotels, accommodation, all of these types of things. And I think because of that, yes, we've really just seen this ripple effect from the concerts into so many different aspects. And, um, yeah, it's it's pretty incredible the power she has from an economic point of view. And it sounds like just the, the community of the fans is something special. How, how does that compare to perhaps what happens around other performers? Yeah, so one of the things with Taylor Swift is throughout her 18-year career, she's always had a very ongoing and close relationship with her fans. She obviously hides Easter eggs, as we know, which the Swifties, you know, analyze to the nth degree. But essentially, she's always made uh, made time to connect with them both online and offline. And one of the unique things about Taylor Swift is that she's had a history of rewarding fans for their participation. So if you've heard of secret sessions, that's when Taylor would invite fans to come to her house. She'd bake them cookies and she'd play them the album for the first time before the press, before anybody else knew about it. And so because of that, 
fans are really incentivized to participate online. The more that they're posting about her, the more that they're, you know, writing about her or celebrating her or posting videos, reacting to, you know, uh, the latest thing that she's done is that they know that there's this chance that perhaps they might be one of the lucky ones that gets chosen by Swift to have one of these experiences. And so because of that, those levels of participation are somewhat more incentivized, I guess you could say, than in other fandoms of other pop music stars that we're seeing at the moment. Kate, just to go back to the Easter eggs idea, a lot of people will be saying, what, what do you mean? Does she actually hide little physical eggs? <laughs> no, they're like clues, aren't they? It sounds a bit like the Illuminati. It is. I mean, look, Taylor Swift has been, uh, you know, compared to a cult at, at times, which is an interesting comparison. But yeah, right from the beginning of her career, she used to do it in the liner notes for her albums. So she basically, you know, capitalised different letters in the lyrics or, you know, do different colours and things and basically encouraged fans to go that step further and do more of a close reading of her work. So it started off with those and then over the years it's really accelerated. So if you watch any of her music videos, there's multiple little clues in the background. So before she announced the album Lover, she had the, the, the sign Lover hidden in one of her music videos and, you know, sometimes in social media posts, she'll use particular numbers. You know, the other day she said, I released this song, hundred you know, 175 years ago. And then people are sort of thinking, OK, well, what's what's the significance of this number? You know, where, what might she be planning in the future? And she said in in interviews before, you know, how far in advance can I hint at something, you know, two, three years. And so she's known for having this real mastermind kind of personality um, and really doing that. And it encourages fans to engage on that extra level with her creative work, which, um, yeah, we've seen multiple different fan theories online in the lead up to Australia as well. Well, this is all making me think of Madonna's fascination with Kabbalah way, 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 way back. But (laughs) stick with us if you're not a Taylor Swift fan because we're looking at her incredible influence in the culture and the very, very savvy way that she uh, uses her her popularity and the way her fans react to that and the very savvy way that they go about engaging with her too. We've been speaking with Kate Patterson, who's doing a PhD at RMIT on this subject, and Jessica Lesky has made a documentary about fandom in various uh, iterations. And Jessica, you researched how fandom worked throughout time and found some interesting facts, including one from ancient Roman times, I understand, about how fans approached their heroes back then. Well, yeah, I think we think of this as a very modern phenomena. Um, but I think humans are kind of genetically wired to have idols in some way. Because, yeah, we can look back to in the gladiator times, people had their favourite gladiator and you know there was a merchandise stand outside where after the match you could buy some sweat from your a vial of sweat of your favorite gladiator um and there was that (laughs) it's kind of yeah maybe you'd be better buying a t-shirt after a taylor swift concert instead of a a vial of sweat but yeah that and um so yeah it's not a new phenomena and even um we can look back at Franz Liszt and the term Listomania. He was a composer, um, a Hungarian composer in the 1800s, and audience members, particularly women, would kind of lose their minds at um, some of his concerts and to the point where, yeah, they would also be collecting a, a cigarette butt that he'd tossed aside and, and wearing that as a necklace or trying to catch a handkerchief that he tossed aside. Um, so it was maybe the combination of the music creating all these feelings and having this kind of celebrity that you're looking up to. 
It's really interesting, isn't it, that there are lots of examples throughout history of this level of devotion. Tell us a bit about Beatlemania and, and how that uh, compared to other uh, crazes that hit Australia, Jessica. Mm, well, yeah, I think the fact that the Beatles came here um, was so huge for that time in Australian history. Um, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people came out to see them, possibly more than came out to see the Queen um, when she came, which was also a huge deal. Um, and I think for young women at the time, having somewhere where you could scream and shout and let out all these feelings that you weren't able to let out normally um, was a huge deal. And I think, you know, even now that's a really huge appeal for people going to concerts is where else can you let out these kind of pleasurable <laughs> screams and cries and just really let yourself go and not feel like you're going to be judged for that. It was really fascinating seeing that you spoke to a woman called Susan about her experience of being a fan when, when the Beatles visited. And it sounded like it was almost a, a kind of a, a way to experience some of the racier teen emotions in, in a particular way. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, yeah, in the 50s and 60s as a young woman, you were meant to just be planning for marriage and in the kitchen and, you know, being very following all the rules. And then suddenly here was this, you could talk about love, you could talk about sex, you could talk about having a crush and you could um, scream and cry listening to the music on the radio and just, yeah, I think it was this real release that they'd never had before that boys can get when they go to the football. Um but women aren't expected and young girls aren't expected to be able to have that same kind of release. Kate Patterson, tell me more about that sense of community that Taylor Swift engenders in her her fans. Do, do you mean that uh, being a Swift fan feels or is safer than being a fan of, of some other performers? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to perform. It's hard to compare different performers. Um, obviously, I've studied a few of them, but I think particularly with Taylor Swift, as we've seen with the Eras tour, is it's this really safe space for fans to come. You know, whether it's on their own or with other friends, and with the friendship bracelets and the other things, they have this ability to to connect with one another. And I think, you know, there are obviously some toxic elements to any type of fandom, but overwhelmingly, the Swifties that I've spoken to have spoke have sort of shared how within these fandom spaces they've been able to express themselves, they haven't felt a sense of judgment and they've been able to sort of construct a sense of self in that, you know, that teenage time and also older in life where perhaps they might not be able to find that same sense of self in other non-fandom environments. And so I think that is one of the reasons that Swifties stay so loyal is the friendship element as well as obviously wanting to see Taylor and wanting to to participate in the concerts and all of these other things. And Jessica, you became a One Direction fan in your 30s. Tell us about that. What, what was it like for you at the time? Um, well, maybe a bit isolating because I wasn't, you know, they, they were targeted to teenagers but I think I missed when I was a teenager I wasn't interested in boy bands and as an older person I realized I'd kind of judged fans which was the motivation to make the documentary because I was like it's not yes it is about the screaming and crying and that's very cathartic but um, it's about the community it's about the yeah the things that people make the fan art the um that yeah it was such a bigger phenomena than I'd realized and that it was really positive um I think we really dismissed things that young girls like or women like um and i'd done the same thing and one direction and the fans kind of showed me that there was something really special about being a fan so i mean what was the appeal for you um well i was a lot older than them so it wasn't yeah i wasn't planning to marry any of them but i think it was kind of the 
innocence of the songs, the catchiness of the songs. Um, and then it was kind of my first time of being a fan of something when the internet was a huge part of my life. So, yeah, it was going online, seeing fan art that I'd never seen before, seeing how hilarious the fans were um, with all their conspiracy theories and, you know, funny jokes that they would make up. And um, I think it was that being part of a community um, was really interesting to me. And then that I think the film I wanted to make because I was like, was it the same when when the Beatles came here? Was it the same when, you know, to be a Take That fan or a Backstreet Boys fan, um, a Monkees fan? Had it had it be the same or was what I was experiencing, you know, the most important fandom ever? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all want to feel that we're experiencing <laughs> the most important fandom ever. Kate, you've written about being a Delta Goodrum fan and, and some of your thoughts too on why she doesn't attract the same degree of fandom as some other performers. What What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, Delta was my first foray into fandom. I'm still a huge fan of hers. Um, I think she's incredible. But I think it was a different era. You know, when I first became a fan of Delta, there wasn't social media. This was a time before Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And so, you know, we've, we found a real sense of community on an online forum, which was one of the sort of earlier um, sort of iterations, obviously, of online fan communities. And I'm still, you know, best friends with a lot of the people that uh, I met back there. So it is a, it is a different type of fandom it is a long-term fandom and I think the other thing is she's Australian and so it's a slightly different landscape here in terms of you know having an international star like Taylor Swift come here you've obviously got um, a, a sort of a worldwide um, impact but likewise I think you know these localized fandoms and you know she's got fans all over the world as well um, you just you still find that sense of connection and I think Delta's been really great throughout her career as well as really making the time to do the in-stores to connect with fans to speak with them and I think that's why a lot of people have stuck around um, as well. Though you also wrote a really interesting article on the ABC site kind of pointing out that, say, Jet had got certain uh, accolades that Delta hadn't, even though she'd gone platinum many, many, many more times than their albums, for example. Yes. And uh, Jessica touched on that judgment that happens towards particularly female fans. Tell us your thoughts on that, Kate, that kind of idea of being hysterical or crazy. Uh, Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, basically, I think, um, as I sort of wrote in the article, article about Delta, I think, you know, artists that have primarily female fandoms get belittled because they're not sort of treated in the same way, you know, the interests of boys or men. And, you know, it's kind of a wider sort of gendered aspect of the music industry. But yeah, I think uh, a lot of the early fan studies work was trying to change those perceptions of fans as being these kind of passive participants who just screamed and were delusional and thought that they were going to marry, you know, whoever the, the celebrity might be. Whereas what we've come to find is that fans are intelligent, they produce creative work, they participate to high levels online. And just because, as Jessica said, they like to express themselves by screaming at a concert, that's nothing different from going to, you know, a football game or the Super Bowl and, and screaming in that way. And I think particularly for pop music fans, pop music is kind of seen as this inauthentic type of music when you compare it to something like rock or, you know, alternative music. That's kind of seen as more, you know, real musicians, real lyrics, all of the rest. And so then when you look at pop and, you know, obviously there's a wide different range of of pop music, but people don't consider it as authentic or as good music, quote unquote. Um, and so because of that, not only do they kind of get shamed in some uh, in some regards for being, you know, screaming teenage girls, that sort of um, perception that we have of fans, but also they're denigrated for their taste in music because a lot of people think, oh, well, that's just not as good as the greats. And so I think 
you know, whether it's Delta or whether it's Taylor winning, um, you know, the Grammy for Album of the Year for the fourth time is some people think, oh, well, she doesn't deserve it because she's making pop music. Mm. Like what, you know, she's not as good as, as the Beatles. She's not as good as, you know, these artists that have that kind of legacy status. And obviously she's still young. She's still got a long career ahead of her. But I think a lot of pop musicians and a lot of pop music fans have to do extra work to try and get their um, interests taken seriously and have their behaviours not to be shamed for being too much in a way that we don't, you know, shame young men and boys for doing the same thing in sport. It'll be fascinating to see how long her career is. It's been 18 years already. Go Tay-Tay. Thank you both so much for joining us today and enjoy the Swift Posium, Kate. Thank you so much. It's been great so far. It's a pleasure. Kate Patterson's a PhD candidate in the music industry and Jessica Lesky is the director of a documentary called I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. Really fascinating dive into the undercurrents of popular culture that are all around us and affect us even if we don't want them to. Interesting text here. I'm so concerned with all the fuss over Taylor Swift. It's part of a story of cultural colonisation. She's the most polluting artist on the planet, says this text, encouraging young folk to dream with limited resources in a deepening climate crisis. The fast fashion and endless merch, people flying all over to see her, are all part of the cultural crisis driving the climate crisis. I'm a huge supporter of her smarts, but the adoration phenomenon is worrying. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.